I'm a dude, and I'm inviting you to join me on a podcast about brews. Does that include stouts? Yes. Yes, of course it includes stouts. Like I was saying, join us every Saturday on the journey hey, hey, into... Hey, co- wait a minute. Do you, do you guys do anything about, like, IPAs? Yes. Like that? Yes, of, yes, of, yes, we do IPAs. Okay. It's, okay. It, yes. Anyway, join us on the Journey into Comics Network for Brews with Dudes. Whoa, whoa, po- hey, hey, do you... Have you guys ever... Do you care if I bring some Zima on? Yes, I care if you bring Zima. Zima doesn't count. Zima... Oh. Zima... Dr. Dongo. Anyway, join us every Saturday for a podcast that delves into the craft brew world. The following... The following... The following journey into comics. Journey into comics. The journey into comics. Journey into comics. Journey into comics. Journey into comics. Network. 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 Production. Production. Hey, hey, this is Josh Richmond, and you are listening to the Voice of Survival podcast, exclusively on the Journey into Comics Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Voice of Survival podcast. As the introduction said, I am your host, Nate. Today, it's season two, episode seven. There is no guest. We've had another snafu in the wrinkle of time, and people have had things come up that we just can't avoid in life. And you know what? You got to roll with the punches sometimes, folks. I think I said that last episode, too. It's it's okay, though, because I kind of wanted to do this series where I kind of looked back at some of the stuff that happened in the first season and just play some moments of that first season with no real rhyme or reason, unedited, unfiltered, just kind of go back in time and take you back to the early days of this show and and what I was trying to do and hopefully what I was trying to convey. This week's episode is a little bit different. I'm going to call this the Celebrity Wing episode because I've actually been fortunate enough you know, doing the voice of survival to interview all kinds of, you know, well-known people, people who have notoriety in the world or can, you know, travel around and do things just with their name and are in a place that I would love to be and I'm trying to get us, you know, there or whatever. So uh, ultimately, this week you're going to hear me sit down with uh, Athena Finger, who was the heir to Batman. This was my first real, like, quote-unquote celebrity interview I'm ultra nervous, honestly. Like, I was very taken aback that I was even able to make this happen and to have her on the show and fortunate enough to do it in general. It was really, it was really a crazy experience to be able to have her be on the Voice of Survival podcast. It was my first fucking season, my first attempt to do this kind of a show and to land her was really cool. So, uh, you know, that was really fun and it was, uh, you know, a great conversation you guys are going to get taken back to. And then also on this week's episode, we're only going to do two because the last one was a little bit longer. This week, we've also got um, excerpt from the interview that I did with Stu Block of Iced Earth. Uh, this is, like, amazing because it was literally recorded on my birthday uh, when I recorded that uh, specific episode. And I had just seen them on the 
the last show of their tour and I got to see them on the first show of their tour and there was like the you know there's all this craziness around this whole thing so I've just been really honestly um, blessed you know and I, I, I kind of feel like it's time to just peel back behind the scenes of the of the Stu Block interview a little bit more uh, because you know, I got an opportunity to meet him behind the scenes and uh, gave him a little care package and was just like, hey, man, here's here's a care package to get you through your travels. And uh, he was really humbled by that and said, man, anytime we play the States, any tour, anywhere, just let me know and I'll put you on the guest list. And I was like, holy shit, man, that's you don't have to do that. You know, that's totally unbelievable. But thank you. That's great. Of course, when they came to Chicago on that tour and it was the last show of the tour, I was like, can I please be there? And he was like, oh, absolutely. It'd be great. Brought him a care package again and got to hang out with him outside of the bottom lounge. Again, another fucking amazing experience just meeting a person who I looked up to because, musically speaking, Iced Earth has had a massive impact on my life. Uh, so, you know, to to be able to meet the guy who was the voice of that and then to think back to when Brandon first introduced me to that band and think back when he first introduced me that Stu was taking over Matt Barlow's place, like... All these things considered, and then that moment in February meeting Stu Block for the first time, and then being able to, after all those little experiences and having actual real life moments with this dude, I got to sit down and chat with him, and it was uh, you know a moment that uh, no one will ever be able to take away. Like that's one thing I fucking love more than anything about radio and all this and, and all the podcasts and the shit that we do, is that all these cool experiences, no matter what, they're here. No one can take them away. They've really fucking happened. You know, and um, so I'm going to just stop with the bullshit chatter now, folks. You're going to just get right into it. I'm not going to do a breakdown. You know what? I will do a breakdown in between and real quick let you guys be notified and transitioned into the Stu Block interview. So first up here is going to be my interview with the lovely Athena Finger, the heir to Batman, her grandfather Bill Finger, creator of Batman, the Joker, Riddler, Robin, Two-Face, Penguin, you name it, Catwoman. Commissioner Gordon, the Bat Signal, the Batmobile, I mean, everything. Batman, Gotham City in itself. Bill Finger fucking created, man. Bob Kane just had to put, like, the fucking filter on it and say that he did it and, and he got notoriety because he was savvy in a way to know that, like, he could capitalize on Batman's name before Batman's name was what it became. He had the foresight to go, oh... Like, I'm going to be able to cash in on this shit at some point, and that's what I want is the motherfucking movie check. You know, so uh, Bill finally got justified and got notoriety around the time Batman v Superman came out, and Athena and I have a nice long conversation about the whole ins and outs of everything, talking about Mark Ty Tyler Nobleman and all that stuff and his journey to get her on there and the... Um, Batman and Bill documentary. We covered it all. We really went through a whole gamut of conversation in that uh, in that one. So without further ado, you're going to hear, as I always do, we're going to have the outro music for the show, typically, that's going to bleed us back into a conversation I had. Season 1, episode 15 of The Voice of Survival Podcast with Miss Athena Finger. Take it away, me.
we've still got this big dark mystery looming overhead of of your journey and 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 where everything kind of takes a crazy turn in your life so you're living in florida you've built this family everything's kind of going normal you know we haven't really dove, dove super deep into it yet but growing up there is hmm i don't know how to word this almost a cloud over your family because the legacy is not lining up with history at the moment. Correct. And I feel like, you, you know, it's one of those things that when you're younger and you really believe in something, you're like, damn it, I believe in this and I'm going to share with the world how I feel and you know, maybe I'm not going to make a lot of friends in that regard or maybe I'm going to upset some people, but uh, I'm going to stand for what I believe in. And at some point you get wore out from that and you almost throw your hands up in the air. Sort of. Um, I didn't talk about it for a long time. So um, when it did come back into my life, it was kind of a shock. But also a relief because it was time. It really was. It was time for it to be resolved and for the real history to come out. So Absolutely. And, it, and the beautiful thing about this is now there is a legacy that has been restored and not only has it been restored but in a really beautiful way you have enhanced the legacy that your grandfather really created because now there's this really i mean from the depths of my soul i mean this like the most beautiful form of justice being served and in a very sad and very poetic story you get this awesome resolve and now you've become this beacon for this character. It's uh, it's a lot. <laughs> it's it, times it's we put it like that. It's like oh my god, that's like intense, so intense. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as as a fan of the character Batman, who we're talking about today, uh, it's it's almost it shaped my legacy as a person and the things I've aspired to do and you know, creating a whole podcast network where the, the linchpin of the, the thing was a comic-based show uh, and now doing an interview with you. It's just like this beautiful symmetry where Batman has affected me so much that, you know, I watched this documentary that Mark put together um, right when it came out, I think it was, the, the Batman and Bill that's on Hulu. And right. as soon as I saw it, I was, I mean, honestly, a very naive comic book fan because I did not know the story of Bill Finger at all. And I've never been so shocked and amazed and humbled and also just, like, impressed with someone's drive to right a wrong, you know? Well, I mean, it was something that Bill wasn't able to do for himself, even though he did, you know, at one time tried to speak up for himself, but it didn't work. Um, you know, my father tried to get credit for his dad. Um, unfortunately, he passed away very young and wasn't able to see any kind of resolution for his father. So it, the burden really fell on me to make sure that something was resolved. Something. One way or another. Just... The unknown really is worse Absol than the known. Absolutely agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly. Like having no clue if there's going to be resolution 
is just tiresome because your mind is constantly wondering the what ifs, what could happen, yes. what could come. So when Mark reaches out to you, and, and, you know, obviously that journey is very beautifully told in the documentary of how he found you on MySpace and, and, and the beauty of the Internet. You know, you can just connect with anybody. Yes. Uh, so he finds you and then it's almost immediately like, I, I, you know, and you don't have to get too deep into this if you don't feel comfortable doing this or not. But I, I feel like it opened up a wound like right away. And you were just like, oh, it did. Oh, it was damn so it. extremely emotional. There was a lot of crying. Um, my ex-husband, who I was married to at the time, didn't really understand why I was so emotional about it because it was something that I never talked about. Um, so it was it was very tough for me emotionally, but it was also very exciting because here's this person who's showing so much interest and enthusiasm and really wants to get Bill's story out there and and sees the injustice and that, look, there is a community of people out there that do know the truth and the truth is spreading. Like, cause I was, I never was part of that whole scene. I was never into going to conventions. I, I barely read comics myself. Like it just wasn't the culture that I gravitated towards, but I was totally into horror and that's what I did. Oh, you like horror. horror. That's awesome. So, and then when I was, you know, when I was younger, I was making my own art. I was doing my own thing. I was creating. I was, you know, I wasn't trying to be influenced by other people's art. You know, I was trying to find my own at that time. So, um, you know, it's it was it was really a shock, but exciting because he really was trying to get Bill's name attached to the Batman name. I mean, that was his ultimate goal was for people to know the truth and the, what the correct history was. I'm going to, I'm going to throw a number at you that you might not totally be aware of, but maybe you are, who knows? Uh, According to how the documentary is told, and I know that there's sometimes movie magic and stuff based on what they say in that this journey for you with Mark finding you and then everything that kind of started at the premiere of the dark Knight to now has been 10 years in the making. Like you have, you've officially been in this for a decade and almost like a little, no, I've been in it a lifetime. Well, you've been in a lifetime. That's true. Um, but the fight really, you know, the idea of the fight really came to mind with me when my father passed away, but I was always discouraged. that It's going to cost too much money. This, that, the other thing. How do you fight a conglomerate like Warner brothers? Well, just even DC, because you have to think back in the early 90s, I don't think Warner Brothers had bought them yet. Oh, that's true. Very true. Uh, My father passed away in 92, so I believe it was still just DC at that time. So, I mean, even just going against them, they were still a huge corporation, company, um, not corporation, but company to go against. And it would, again, take finances that a young person doesn't necessarily have. (laughs) So, um, you know, so when he, when Mark came and said, you know, you should really approach the subject again, it's really something that you should really consider resolving. I took it to heart and I, I talked to people that were close to me and, and, you know, we kind of all said it was really up to me and, you know, 
gonna be a long fight and you know but you're really the only person that can do it so it's up to you <laughs> and I'm like okay well I guess I have to think about it some more and then you know came to be in the 75th anniversary and I was like you know what we really need to make this right so that's when I started to really pursue things was in 2014 although things were you know I had communications back and forth with DC. Um, One thing that's very interesting to note is that you got married, but your last name is still Finger. So you have kept the lineage going. And that kind of leads me to a sub next question. And maybe hopefully this isn't a boundary of crossings or anything, but you have a son. Yes. And I've just been curious, have you guys considered having his last name changed to Finger just to carry it on? We've been trying, I have been trying to convince him to at least hyphenate it. Like, I understand his dad's old school Cuban. Um, I understand that whole dynamic of carrying on the name. Um, My son is his only son. He has a daughter. She doesn't carry on his name. So I understand that. But I think that there's also, you need to, you know, I think you need to hyphenate and add this other name. Um, you know, but it's really it, he might change his mind. He's still kind of young. He's only fifteen, so he's uh, still he's got tons of time to let life give yeah. him experience to to feel out what exactly he's going to want to do. And of course, exactly. I mean, it's a personal thing. It is his name. So if he chooses not to do it, I mean, I have to respect that. So, but it would be nice if he would add it. But in in his heart, he's all about it. He's definitely a finger and and totally supports the cause and is super excited that his great grandfather's, you know, got his recognition and credit for everything that he contributed. Gosh, and that list is incredible. Watching the documentary and you hear like, it's not just Batman. It's Batman. It's Robin, Catwoman, Scarecrow, Joker, Riddler, Penguin, Two Face, Gordon, Gotham, the Batcave, Batmobile, Batman's origin story. It's amazing. It is amazing the mountain of work that Bill put in that literally changed the course of culture as a whole. Yes, it did. I think that my my dad would be blown away by what has happened with the character. Because, I mean, it was still, in the 80s, it was still not as huge. It was still kind of a nerdy, geeky, you know, you're sitting in your room and you don't have any friends. And it was a, you know, a hidden culture. Where now it's celebrated and everybody goes to cons and everybody likes the characters and everybody wants to be part of it now. Everyone's proud to be a nerd. now than it was, you know, 30 years ago. Absolutely. So, um, you know, I think he would be blown away by it. At times, I'm blown away by it. I mean, before Mark had found me, it used to be an eyesore. And I mean, you literally walk down the street, just walk one block down the street and count how many times you see the Batman symbol, a Batman character, anything related to the Batman. I'm telling you, you won't go a block without seeing at least one. And so for a long time, it was like I, I tried to not see it, even though it was in my face all the time. <laughs> you, you you were living your own personal horror story with it at that time. Kinda, yeah. It, it was, was like really, it was painful. It was, uh, you know, it was just a constant reminder. Because at the time, you couldn't, 
like you could proclaim the legacy, but there was no one at that time or not enough information to the people around you that could substantiate what you were trying to tell them. Like, hey. Well, the internet definitely changed that a lot. I mean, oh, yeah. The, the free sharing of information just allowed it to be a lot easier for people to, you know, see that. It's the truth. It's really, you know, there are articles out there. There's people out there who know the truth that worked with them, that worked in the industry, knew about the story. Like, there's confirmation out there now. And lots of people doing. that, and and there's lots of people that actually champion Bill now. It's yes. not. It's not only just that, like they're like, yeah, we were there, we were a part of it. But like they're like, no, you guys don't understand how much he really did. Like look at it, look at it for what it is. And then like, it's amazing. Right. I, you know, it's funny. Some people don't know this. And I, of course, just to refresh and know as much as I absolutely could going into this interview, I re-listened to you and Kevin Smith's podcast that you recently did, which was incredible. And that I was, was so much fun. I'm, I'm sure Kevin Smith, I'm an absolute huge fan. He's like one of my, um, you know, if I could ever have a fantasy uh, interview, he's the one, you know, so, oh, really? <laughs> oh, absolutely. So I'm like shoveling snow today and I'm listening and I had listened when you guys first released it, but I wanted to go back and refresh and I'm shoveling the snow today and I just get to the part where you guys are talking about how your grandpa also helped create Green Lantern. Like, are you kidding me? Yeah, he didn't just do the Batman stories. He he worked wherever he could get a paying job. And that and he's a hustler in that regard. And it's amazing and to think of some of the things. Lived- Oh, yeah. I mean, he worked on the Superman script. He created Green Lantern. He created Wildcat. He did, I believe it was uh, the All-American or something like that. He's done so much, but it's not even just comics that he did. He wrote for the radio. He wrote for TV. He wrote movies. He wrote for the Army. I mean, he wrote whatever and whenever he could possibly write. It was truly his passion to write. It was. Um, and that, and you know, that's something you can't fake. It's, that's one of the most genuine things in the world. He loved it on the most honest level that he did it wherever he felt necessary. It's just amazing that he was so ahead of his time creatively because you think about, you know, the documentary and whatnot and, uh, the, the moment where he says like, Batman shouldn't be red. It doesn't, it's, it's, it's too bright. That doesn't make sense for a bat. And like the concept that they he really thought about like what would a bat encapsulate that's forward thinking in in the 30s that just you know it shapes society it really does it it did he was a very visual writer um and he was able to express it to people so that they could you know hopefully portray what he was trying to show with his words um he was he was definitely ahead of his time and he, uh, you know, he did a great job, and this is something that you guys, t- I think you talk about it in both the documentary and, the, and definitely on the, on the podcast with Kevin Smith, not to just regurgitate a little bit of information, but I just loved the fact that, uh, you know, he, uh, he was always creating, always striving to, to, to think ahead, but not only did he do that, he could go, when you're drawing this, Mr. Artist Guy, imagine this or I'm going to set a prop that gives you an example of what I'm trying to elaborate or the scene needs to move this way. He was more than just a storyteller. He was actually a narrator of these pages. Yes. Which is very different. It's a different approach to writing. 
Absolutely. Uh, so the question I guess I'm going to lead out of this a little bit is, do you dabble in writing at all? No. Not something that really interests you? really, no. Okay, but but you got you the know, art side of it, though. Yeah, I'm definitely all about the drawing and the painting. Um, photography, I'm, I, was, I, I love to do that. I did it a lot when I was younger. I got back into it recently, too, getting back into the painting recently. Um, so, I mean, I, I've, I'm going back to my original roots, which is the visual arts, um, which is, all, you know, a lot of fun for me. I, I get to play. <laughs> I worked with... Um... I worked with a photographer who was like old school trained in film and like old school lighting techniques. I worked with him for a couple of years and I learned so much. Like it's, it's just, I was just a sponge in that moment, even though he was maybe like the worst boss I've ever had. Like I, I, he really was, he was like this lecherous old man who totally liked to just abuse everyone verbally. It was very strange (laughs) and off putting, but I was just like, okay, give me all your knowledge. That's all I care about. You know, Uh, that's smart. (laughs) <laughs> it, it is. And then like now I'm just like I have a cell phone and I'm just like, oh, hell, I can use his techniques with this and it'll make a picture look 10 times better. Great. Let's go oh, on. Yes. Um, I want to go back <laughs> a little bit, though, because you said you're a horror fan. Yes. So I got to know what are some of your favorite horror movies? Do you like horror punk? <laughs> like like there, like there are like two million different questions with horror. I think we could get into on this. Oh, wow. <laughs> you weren't expecting to talk about something that wasn't Batman today. Um, what's horror punk? You've never heard of horror punk, the music style? Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. All right. Like the Misfits? Yeah, okay. Cool. Um, (laughs) no, um, you asked me what my favorite horror movies are? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's so many. (laughs) Oh, that's okay. Which decade? Oh, well, let's start with, like, the classic, like, 50s horror, if we're looking at, like, and, I mean, if you have stuff that's earlier than 50s, please do indulge. I mean, I'm a huge horror buff Um, myself. Those, um, let's see. I don't know the 50s so much, but Whatever Happened to Baby Jean is one of my favorites from the 60s. Awesome. Um... The 60s is also when The Green Slime came out. I have to just put that out there since Bill wrote that one. Which is um, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, hand it's in hand. A, a fun movie. It's so fun. I love it. Um, and there's some really interesting facts about that movie, too, because I did a screening of it at an art festival up here, and they're like, you have to talk before we do the movie. And I'm like, okay, what the hell am I going to talk about? <laughs> I'm like Googling all these facts. I'm like, tell me about the movie. And like, there's some weird stuff about that movie. Oh, you please indulge. Absolutely. Of course I want to know. Okay. Your grandpa so... wrote it, which is crazy. Okay. <laughs> one thing I do need to ask leading into this though, did you okay. know he wrote it before you watched it or did you see the movie and then you learned like, oh, whoa, grandpa did that. That's crazy. No, I knew beforehand. Okay. 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 So let's go back into these crazy facts about the green slime. Okay. So... First of all, the director of that movie was Japanese. Awesome. Okay. So um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Now, the, the people who were inside the green monster, the one-eyed monster that's in there, the small ones were small Japanese children. What? Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm like, okay. 
Another interesting fact was that there were two versions of the movie. There was a U.S. release, and then there was a Japanese release, because it was Japanese director, right? Well, the U.S. release was the full movie, which included the love story between the two main characters, right? That's what carries the whole movie through, is the love story. Absolutely. Well, in Japan, they cut out the love story, so it's just a sci-fi movie. Oh my because gosh! They felt it was too risque to include the love the love story. <laughs> okay, so how <laughs> convoluted does it how convoluted does it make that story then without the part I that makes know. that story? You haven't seen it. I I, I have not seen the Japanese version. I feel no. like I'm gonna but try I mean, to find like it and give it to you somehow. <laughs> Like, so you can just watch it and tell, and we can, we talk about how bad it is because I'm sure it's. How do you have like that's the most important part of the story? You can't. I know. What <laughs> horror without love is just kind of. I don't even know what to what's exactly. What is the point? There is no point. So, what other facts about Green Slime can you tell me? Are there other crazy things that are within oh, this movie? I have to look it up again. Those were my three favorites, though. Did the you small know Japanese children? That's. I'm sure they had a field day filming that. Like, okay, we're gonna cover you in Green Slime. Oh, so crazy. Uh, did do you know this fact? But was Bill on set when they filmed that, or was he just the writer? He turned in his script and went about his business. Didn't care to I see. Think he did, no, he he didn't leave New York. Oh, so he was just he all, all business. Yeah, he didn't like to leave New York. His second wife tried to get him to move to California, and they actually got a divorce because she had to move to California to go take care of her, one of her children. And um, he refused to go, so they split up. Um, and then she moved back to New York, and right before they passed away, they were talking about getting back together. But he, he did not want to leave New York City. That's where he wanted to be. That was that was his turf. That was his home. That was the yeah. birth of Gotham. I mean, really, all the yeah. things that are within Gotham you can find in New York City. It's a, a kind of a dark and beautiful symmetry there. Uh, let's see here. I've got a bunch of little notes and stuff. I got to try to remember to ask you about along okay. the. Well, let me tell you. Okay, so I told you the '60s and the oh. '70s. There's so many good horror movies coming out of the '70s and the '80s. Okay. Um, of course, Texas Chainsaw is, like, of course, a classic favorite. Um, in the 80s, I was a huge Freddy Krueger fan. I still am. Awesome. Still love, love Freddy him. myself. Um, then, um, uh, some other ones that were my favorites were, like, Hellraiser, um, Moving into, like, the 90s. I don't know. They were weird in the 90s with the horror movies. I can't really think of any that, like, really, really grabbed me. Scream, maybe, is, like, the only one I can really think about. No, it was too campy and funny. It was really campy. Of course, every time I think of Scream, I always think of Scary Movie instead of Scream because they just did such a good parody of that movie. Uh, Although, I mean, Scream is a great scary movie if you're, like, not accustomed to horror. I mean, it's a great story. It's got a nice twist. At the, you know, like, it's it's put together very well. But being someone who grew up watching the genre, it's like, this is hilarious. He's like, there's a formula for it. Don't say I'm going to be right back. Woo! You know? It's yeah. Like, Shut up. Every time you say I'm coming right back, you've definitely doomed yourself. Just yes. give it up. It's over. <laughs> like, game over. You lose. Uh 
I'm trying to think of other 90s horror movies. Uh, Chucky, I guess? right? Maybe the Child's Play Chucky movies are really... Oh, it came out in the late 80s. They were late. 87? Okay. So, okay, that... That's that's probably about right. The nineties was like okay, so the nineties was like the big vampire time. Interview Um, with a vampire. Vampire came out, but I don't consider that a horror story because that's such a love story. Absolutely. Um, So I don't consider that horror, even though technically, I guess because it's a Dracula movie, it would be horror. But I don't know; it's just too beautifully done for it to be looped into that. So then this I. Is my opinion. Okay. Oh, you know, I do have one 90s movie that I guess technically could be considered horror, but I don't know okay. if it resonated with you, uh, which would be the Blair Witch Project. Blair Witch. Okay, yeah, that came out in 99. So it was like right at the end of the 90s there. Uh, and that was, you know, that was unique. That was a unique movie. It was the first of its kind. Um, I was impressed with the fact that. That they did it in such a non-Hollywood way. You know what I mean? They really just were a couple people in the woods. And sometimes that's just scary. And then you have this other story going on with a witch. You know, it was like... And the way that they did it wasn't like super effects. It was, you know, it was kind of the... I guess the first kind of found footage film that's started that whole genre absolutely and then i'm trying to think if there was anything else before that but i can't really think of anything no and then of course from blair witch spawned the paranormal activity movie did that resonate with you at all um no the problem with that is that my ex-husband was not into horror so we didn't really see that many Ah. um during that time i did see house of a thousand corpses and I was not impressed with it. I was like, this is like towards the end when he, when they go underground into the cave and the guy is there. And it's like just weird. It's like it took this weird turn. Like the whole beginning of the movie was just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre in a way. And then it went like, what? <laughs> I watched it and I was like, huh? And I still like question i'm like where where does this fit in like it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense someone come and check this out is this really horror are we counting this as horror it's like i'm confused like it was good up until this point and then what happened Uh, so i'm guessing (laughs) that you were turned off by the devil's rejects then and and didn't no but that one was so much better oh okay 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 so so i get you i get you like a standalone Devil's Rejects is really good. Like, you don't necessarily have to have the beginning, the first movie to really understand what's going on in that movie because they're just being chased by the cops. They're being chased by the cops for some reason. Who cares why? What's happening? You know what I mean? Yeah, that was actually really well explained. Um, I'm going to have to go back and rewatch Devil's Rejects. I watched that, like, once and was like, whoa, okay, creepy. I don't know if I can... I'm a little bit different with my horror. Sometimes I get a little jittery, but uh, do you watch oh, like yeah. the? Uh, do you watch like? Uh, oh God, what was that movie called? Japanese movie. They based Saw off of this movie. Oh, why can't I think of it right now off the top of my head? Uh, I don't know, but they've been putting out a lot of good stuff in the last. I want to say 15 years. I remembered what I've it's been... called. What is it? Ichi the Killer. 
No, I haven't seen that one. It's a Japanese. It on... It's I don't know if it's on like Netflix or Hulu or anything. Maybe it's on a streaming service. I'll do some research after and let you know. Uh, okay. But Ichi the Killer was like the original idea that they took to make Saw. Okay. And I thought the first Saw movie as well as the second Saw movie were pretty good horror flicks. Okay, well, yes, the Saw first couple were really good. I like the series. I like what the, the concept of it. I know a lot of them were really bad. The last one that they just did with Jigsaw, did you see that one? I haven't seen it yet. I have it in my queue to watch. I just haven't got to it yet. It's good. It is it's good. Way better than the last one with the guy who wrote the book that was lying about being. Okay, like, yeah. That was just so ridiculous. The last one, one was the only one in the series I really didn't get down with. Yeah, me too. Like, I could follow along. Like, it was, yeah, it wasn't the greatest, but like, I like gore. Like, Same. I like, you know, I like to see that stuff. And not only that, I'm so fascinated, especially with the old school movies, like American Werewolf in London. The special effects back then were really special effects. Correct, when movie magic they're, was born. This is, they're starting to bring it back, though. They use a lot of CGI still, but I think they're really starting to bring back the more organic type of... Practical effects. Yeah, like the the natural special effects where you really do interact i mean that was one of the things that i actually loved about the freddy krueger movies was all the super intense special effects that went into that movie and i used to watch documentary after documentary about those movies and like oh that's how they did that that's so cool like wow i would have never thought that it looks so real like did you see never sleep again computerized now it's like uh (laughs) <laughs> you're right you can't tell now when it's computerized because it just like it t- there's a certain quality that gets taken away from the visual yes uh that you yes. just can't replicate and uh I- i'm curious did you see never sleep again it's the uh it's the four hour freddy krueger documentary on netflix that recounts every single movie and all the behind the scenes stuff parts of it oh it's so good it's so long because like i said it's four hours long yeah, but it's so worth it. There you go. Hey, that's actually a great question. Do you mainly just like have some like a TV on in the background when you're creating your art, or do you listen to music, or what kind of music do you listen to when you're creating? If that's a thing, uh, I I do both. I'll put movies on, or I'll get stuck on a show and I'll just let it play. Or some days I want to bounce around the house and paint, and I'll listen to music. I listen to. Um, a lot of hip hop like atmosphere and gorillas. Um, awesome, love some the gorillas. Other kinds of stuff like that. Um, I don't know if you know who Atmosphere is, but they're I awesome. I feel they're like, like I know one song that Atmosphere did that my buddy was really into back in the day. <laughs> Their music is really good. If you want to check out another band, I really like. They have a lot of good stuff to say. Um, yeah, you know, but I, I listen to a lot of dubstep. I listen to a lot of like obscure stuff like soul coughing or I'll listen to David Byrne sometimes. I like stuff with a beat usually if I'm trying to paint because I need to be kind of upbeat. And Gives lively, you the energy. I'll just go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it just like pulses you with that energy to create and i just want to say like i looking at some of your art on your artist page 
you do amazing work. You did the recreation of the uh, the '66 era, or like the old school comic era Batman on the typewriter recently. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's fantastic! And then you in the keys put finger. I love that little Easter egg. <laughs> like I'm. It a... actually says Bill in there too. If you look from the bottom to the top, it says B I L. Oh, so I put his full name. Clever. That's clever. <laughs> You're so clever. That's great. Uh, so we haven't really got into the other part of this interview that's really interesting to me and, and really the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about because I want to know what the whirlwind has been like for you after the documentary has come out and what this last year has been like and and maybe describe some of these crazy moments like getting interviewed by Kevin Smith and going to premieres and stuff. What has that all been like for you? It's been pretty wild. I mean, like we had said before, my my regular life is pretty regular. I mean, I teach at a college and I grade papers and I, you know, (laughs) I come home and I cook dinner and I took care of my son forever, of course. And still Um, are. Of course. I mean, have to. (laughs) That won't end until I die. (laughs) But anyway, so I mean, then I had this whole other world come in, like, I'm quote on, you know, quote unquote, a celebrity, but I'm not a celebrity because I'm not, you know, you think big name people when you say celebrity, but in the comic world, I kind of am. And I had to adjust to that because it's weird. It's like, I'm just a simple person. I teach math and I have my friends and I do normal stuff. But I also represent this really huge thing, and it's like, wow, like, I have to adjust to being in that spotlight, which is not always the most comfortable place to be. (laughs) Um, So it's been pretty wild. I mean, obviously, it gets easier as the years go on, but... Doing cons and stuff. Yeah, but it's still, like, when people ask me to sign things, it still is, like, why do you want my signature? Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's still kind of a foreign thing. It's not really who I am. But it's something that you've, you're have you becoming. You've become like the bat signal, Athena. I have. And I, I, I fully embrace it. I mean, the fans are awesome. Um, they are brave enough to reach out to me. And I respond to every single person who gets in touch with me. Um, I think it's awesome that people feel comfortable to say, Hey, I just appreciate everything. You know, I think it's awesome. I don't shy away from that because like you said, I kind of am a beacon. They can't talk to Bill directly. Can't go visit a place where his ashes are. Um, I'm the next best thing. So I, 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 I really honor that. I really and I respect the fans for that. It's got and it's got to be kind of weird too because you're you, you are the heir of Batman now. Uh, you have changed the course of history. You have to think seventy six years. Your grandfather went without credit to this character, and through Mark's hard work and your hard work and your ability to just say like. I can't stop until this injustice has been righted. It, it did it. It's changed history now. You know, never do you hear of somebody getting their name put on a, a co-created or a byline way after the fact. 
because it's always it always gets wrapped up in the legal stuff you know it does um and i feel very fortunate that we were able to but again timing played a huge role in that like i had said before sometimes it's all about being in the right place at the right time you know yeah uh so you haven't had any like crazy fan experiences people aren't asking you to like sign their babies or anything right oh no nothing like that so it's pretty (laughs) tame in that regard Oh no! People are extremely respectful. They really are. Well, that's great. I mean, you know, in a, in in this wild west world that we live in now, it is so hard to be trustworthy to people that are uh, just coming up to you because they know your story and don't really know you as a person, or right. are trying to connect. And you're just like, um, hi, what's up? But you know what? I'm in general, I'm just a really friendly person. I mean, if you talk to any of my former students, I mean, I try to just have a good time in general. I mean, we use a lot of laughter in the classroom where we get into it in the classroom. We get personal. We get, you know, it's it's part of who I am. I'm not one to really shy away from people. You seem like a beacon of light as well, like very positive and uplifting uh, through everything you've endured, which is, you know, kind of what this show is all about, like going through some craziness and coming out on the other side and and being okay. And not only being okay, you've, you know, read you've redefined this legacy, as I was saying earlier, Uh, you've totally redefined your own legacy now because you're a torchbearer that gets to experience all these crazy things. Uh, what are some of these like, okay, you've been to a lot of these different events and, and been to screeners and, and seen premieres and whatnot. Have you had anybody in the industry come up to you that just like blew you away that they were aware of who you were based on all this stuff that's gone on? Um, not blown away that they knew who I was, but um, when the Green Lantern movie came out, um, I went out to L.A. for the premiere. I think that was 2011. And- Yes. Okay. And I was at the after party and I was introducing myself to Angela Bassett. And when I said who I was, you know, granddaughter of Bill Finger, the co-creator of Green Lantern, she goes, you mean from the 40s? And I go, you know what I'm talking about? (laughs) She's like, yeah, we're talking about the writer from the 40s. And I'm like, yeah. And she gave me a huge hug and introduced me to our whole entourage. There must have been like 20 people with her. Whoa. And she's like, this is, you know, the granddaughter and da 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 This is all these people. And I'm like, oh, my God. I was like shocked. I I didn't even really get past her saying, you mean the one from the 40s? Like, I was blown away by that. She did her homework. She knew what she was talking about. It was like, thank you. Wow, <laughs> what an amazing experience that this person actually knows what I'm talking about. Because for the Batman ones, only a few people knew. So, so you, you were just—it's not like this. I don't know. People don't take the time, I guess. So really. It's, it had to be vindicating for you because that's probably, you know, 2011, that's before the documentary comes out. So yes. uh, at this point, this is one of the first times where you felt vilified and recognized that your grandfather was getting some recognition from someone. I mean, your whole yes. life you had spent like t- trying to tell people what an amazing person he was and all these cool things he accomplished. 
and no one really getting the importance of it. And then now this is more of the tide turning to what's to what's hip now and what you've been up to now. Um, I'm sure the experience with Kevin Smith on his podcast was a blast. You went to the Fat Cave. It was, uh, yes. Oh, we that's were... amazing. It was. It was. Um, the, the, it's kind of a funny story. I was chasing him down for several years. Um, for three years, in fact, I was chasing him down to be on his show. And it, for whatever reason, it took that long. But it was such a delight to finally connect with him and be able to talk. And I wanted to thank him for having me on the show. And so I did a painting for him. And he was you know, shocked that I had something for him, first of all. And then he was just so delighted when I, you know, showed him what I gave him. And he was like, I, this is amazing. <laughs> I don't get presents, he says, right? And you're just like, really? Really? I know. That's you're Kevin nice. Smith. What? How are people not showering you with gifts, you amazing creature? What? I don't know. But... I mean, it was just, it was such a delight to be able to connect with him finally. And I kept like meeting all these people that are in his circle and even close to his inner circle. And I still couldn't get to connect with him until last year. (laughs) Finally, it's finally happening. It was finally like, yes, yes. (laughs) I, you know, I had a question and it just, it's pervading me. Give me one hot second here. Uh, we were going, uh, well, I do want to ask this recently, and this has already happened. Okay. You, uh, were at the presentation for the street being named after your grandfather. How awesome was that? I was so surprised about that. Mark had been trying to do something for many years, something in New York to honor Bill, a plaque on one of the buildings he lived in, a bench in Poe Park, something. And so the city... Said we're gonna name a street after him that runs along Poe Park in the Bronx. Oh man, so, which is hit where uh, he and Bob created these ideas and, yes, and, and they collaborated. Would talk, they would hang out in Poe Park talking stories and you know, figure out scripts and characters and to be I mean, a was, fly on a tree in that park when they were conversing. I know. Man. Oh, that's just like yeah. a Shakes you to the core to think about. That was an amazing event. I mean, the people that came out, the schools, they had a fifth grade class come out. They all did a little art project that they presented. One student spoke for the news. Like, it was just an amazing experience. The mayor that was running for mayor, uh, awesome. Like, such amazing energy from him. He was so gracious to be part of it. Like, the whole thing was just, like, beaming the whole time it was amazing and that's something that no one can take from you you got to live this really totally incredible experience where uh this will forever be memorialized and i just love that it's a a part you know it runs alongside a poe park and it's just history right there in the moment and my first time i go out to new york that's one of my first stops without a question never been but that's on the docket to do and then i of course being uh, my goofy self i remembered that question that i i slipped on for a second here okay 
It's a follow-up question to something you might actually not be allowed to talk about. So if you can't talk about it, just say, hey, we'll discuss later or something. But okay. on the Kevin Smith podcast, he says he wants to do a comic with you. Has anything been done about that? Have you guys worked on, talked about, collaborated, corroborated on an idea, brought it to DC, anything like that? Um, he did reach out to somebody. We're just waiting to see what, how they feel about it. Interesting. I, I don't have anything else to report. Um, I, I'm curious to see if it would happen. Um, like I said on Kevin's show, I'm a little intimidated, but... I mean, I'll figure it out one way or I think you'd be great, and it would just be so, I mean, day one, people are lining up to buy this book. One, because it's you putting your heart and soul into a Batman story, and then two, it's you who is a creator, who has the finger name, who is not just helping write the story, but actually drawing these concepts and bringing them to life. It could be... I just see absolutely incredible things in that regard, and I'm very hopeful that that actually happens for you guys. I'm uh, very curious to see if it's going to happen. If it does, it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, totally. Sure. You'll have a blast. You'll you'll have more stuff to do at Comic-Cons because then people will have you come up and sign your books. How weird right. is that? Exactly. I'm uh, a little bummed that Hulu isn't going to release the DVD of the documentary, but, you know. Oh, they're not going to do that? No, they're not. Is it because they want to keep the exclusivity of it being streamed? Yes. And that was a phenomenal portion of the conversation that I had with Miss Athena Finger. Man, time flies. It's like it's crazy to think that that interview happened so long ago, really uh, early 2018, and it just feels like it's been a lifetime ago. At this point, it's only been a year, but so many things have happened since then. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned before, up next we've got my amazing and fun interview with Stu that took place on my birthday, which is next week. As you're listening to this, right, today's the 12th. So yeah, next Friday when Crucial Tunes Episode 7 comes out in 007, Nate's going to be bam, wham, shamalam, goddamn, turning 32, man. And that's crazy. So uh, right now, without further ado, here's my interview episode, fuck. I think it was episode 18 or 19 somewhere. I think it was 19. I think it was episode 19 of the Voices Survival Podcast from season one. I didn't do my research. I'm a horrible host. Uh, me with Stu Block from Iced Earth. Uh, and then that's going to be it, folks. So you're going to get the outro from me later on in that show because I'm just going to let that all roll out. You'll probably get the last half of this one. So here, without further ado, me talking to Stu Block. And, uh, and I happen to be chatting it up with uh, Stu Block from my stir, so that's pretty crazy, man. Um, well, I'm glad I'm glad you think that's a birthday present, man. You could be doing far more exciting things on your birthday. <laughs> l- l- listen, stuff's pretty simple in my life. I'm not really materialistic that much. I got to see my dad today. I've got to see my family today. I get to talk to you. Like, it's a win. 
hey man, I'm, I'm that I'm glad to be part of it. Absolutely. Well, Stu, let's get right into your journey. While I met you in a parking lot in Indianapolis back in February and yes. had, had a hilarious interaction with a, a little guy who was looking for a ride home. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was hilarious. That was a really weird thing. Totally out of nowhere. Like we, uh, we decided, hey, we're going to say hey to each other and meet up for a minute. And then um, this little guy kind of showed up and said, hey, can someone call me an Uber? I'll give you a hundred dollars. That was insane. Yeah. So then my journey stopped becoming like chit 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 chatting with you. Brandon kind of got to chit chat with you, and I got pulled into this other side journey. Right, right. But then we kind of got to chit chat a little bit later when I saw you guys in Chicago uh, in March. Right. Which let me tell you, it was cool to see the start and the end of a tour for a band, like the first and last show, because the energies are two different things, and you can tell you've been sleep deprived and been on the road and busted your ass and it's not as fresh off that first show the energy is different but then at the end of the show you're so energy like you guys in chicago just killed it um, yeah yeah it's interesting how it goes you know at the beginning of any tour like you're just getting your you're just getting getting the groove right you're just getting the groove sometimes we're changing up songs on the list and seeing how how the crowd reacts and all that kind of stuff and uh and then uh mid mid it's funny. We always, we always chuckle because we go, well, by the end of the tour, we'll be a well-oiled machine, <laughs> you know? So it'll be, it's funny how it works, but, uh, no, it's all good. It was fun. I think it was a really energetic, um, tour throughout the whole, the whole thing. Cause the, the energy, the underlying energy of, of, of course, having Sanctuary on there and uh, the, the fans were great and, uh, the shows were, were doing well. So we, we had a great time. Absolutely. And I can definitely speak on the fans perspective and say that we all had a blast. Um, and you, of course, you had some like cool, memorable moments, but we'll get to those throughout this show um, within that tour. But uh, you born in November of 77 in Vancouver. Is that correct? Uh, Ottawa. Ottawa. Oh, cool. Yeah. So Canadian born and raised. Uh, what was your first instrument? Where did you start? Did you start on an instrument? Has it always been the vocals? It's always been vocals for me, my friend. Yeah, it's always been vocals. Um, actually, I'd like to, I'd like to take up, uh, I'd like to learn a bit more guitar, but uh, you know, uh, but I've always, yeah, I've always nurtured the vocal aspect of of uh, of my musicianship, I guess, and just, um, you know, it's, I think it's worked out. <laughs> Absolutely. So, per the notes that I have, uh, your according to your internet page, Omega Crom is your first band. Yeah, it was the first band uh, that I was in. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily my band. Uh, it was actually, I got into that band. I was jamming with a few people before. Um, one of my very, very first ones was actually Self Regime. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so that was that was formed sort of uh, mutually. And then um, and then I found uh, Omega Crom and then we... We were, we were writing stuff together, and we played a lot of shows together. But, yeah, that, those were my first two, yeah. And that was like your early uh, taste of music and the, and the playing in front of people and whatnot. Definitely. Uh, when did those bands kind of take shape for you, late 90s, early aughts? Um, well, let me just think. Uh, <clears throat> uh, 2000, yeah, like pretty much like 99, 2000. Excellent. Uh, no, yeah, 99. Well, I'd, uh, you know what? I'd actually have to say two th- 1998 was when it all really – when I made the decision that I wanted – 98-99 is when I made the decision that I wanted to pursue this really seriously. And then uh, – so yeah, now, now here we are almost 20 years later. Yeah, man. And uh, it's definitely been an incredible journey. Of course, along the way – 
after the Omega Crom, you went into a new venture, which was into Eternity. Yes. What yeah, is that, that experience like for you? That was killer because, um, <clears throat> of course, in Omega Crom, like I was, all, I was doing the hybrid thing where I was doing the falsettos mixed with the with the death vocals and uh, the and then the traditional classic power metal vocals, and then um, we toured with them, and then we played in Regina, Saskatchewan, um, where I, where I live now, and uh, we uh, basically. Um, played at a place where the the Tim Roth the <clears throat> the leader of Into Eternity was there he, he I guess he heard about us coming in he knew that and he liked high singers and he knew that I was doing the falsetto stuff and uh and we did that we did that show we did a, and we also did a cover of Painkiller and uh, Welcome Home by by King King Diamond amazing uh, yeah and then uh it was funny I never really got to meet him after the show he just kind of took off but I was like okay well that sucks and then he contacted me later um, and he said he was really, really impressed and that he wanted to try me out. And, uh, I guess the rest is history. I came out there and tried out and got the gig. Got the yeah, gig. It, it was a really cool transition because it was like, I've been from the lowest level all the way till now. Right. So I've done every level, um, with a, a couple of different bands. I've done every, every different level of touring that you could possibly imagine. Right. Fuck. Everything, from the lowest fucking end you know, not playing to like four people, you know, on no stage and basically no PA, <laughs> you know what I mean? And to, to playing freaking arenas with, you know, it's, it's, it's really been a cool, cool thing to see those transitions actually come to think of it. I mean, for, like from you, like you were saying from local bars where you're playing for a couple people, they say like, what's yeah. a monitor? We don't know what monitors are. We just yeah, like fuck off. Just yell if you have to whatever You're like, right? no i'm a singer i need to hear what's going on man yeah. um and then from that all the way to like ancient corian where you guys played cyprus um that i mean I, those are two very far apart spectrums that are incredible right sure for sure and i think dues were paid to get there you know and uh and you know we had there's a lot of shit you have to go through in order to get to that point or to be at those achieving mo or those moments of achievement that you feel are moments of achievement. Um, I feel I'm, I'm success is relative, right. To the person. Right. But I think I am probably one of the most successful people I know. You know, uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's really like, I'm very proud of what I've done and I'm, I could God forbid, but I could die tomorrow and I'd be very happy. You know, I'd still be, I wouldn't regret anything or I'd, I'm not going to be on my deathbed regretting anything because I took chances and I did stuff that, and I'm very proud of what I, what I've done. And, and, and I, just because I'm not a millionaire, uh, success, like I say, success is relative. Um, I know people that are very successful in music and that have big houses and that are, and that's their level of success and that's success for them. But for me, my levels of success is just doing what I've done. I'm happy. That's great. And if I make a million doing it, which I don't think I'll ever do, um, but that's not my goal. Money is not a goal. But if it ever happened, that's just the gravy, man. That's perfect. That's great. You know what I mean? I can, I can save more cats. <laughs> you, <laughs> you know, that's awesome that you brought up cats because obviously you're a humongous cat lover. Anybody yeah. who follows you on Instagram can easily go through and see a ton yeah. of different cool cat pictures and things you've memed with cats and whatnot. Uh, sure. Does that mean we should just start calling you Lucifer or Stucifer? Right. Yeah, Lucifer, right? No, but they do call me the because I. It's funny because I'm kind of like a cat. When I'm on tour, I sleep like 13, 14 hours a day. I don't. 
I don't party a lot. I mean, I pick my battles, of course, and they whenever I, you know, whenever I say I'm going to party, they're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I'm like, I pretty much go off, but it's very rare that I do. So um, they put me in the hockey helmet and tell me and give me a bottle of whiskey and say, don't hurt myself. But, you know, uh, but it's uh, I, I they call me the cat because I sleep a lot, man. And, and I'm like always kind of, you know, sleep. And so like, oh, my God, it's the cat. Go wake up the cat. You know, so maybe I am spawned from a feline some sort of feline from a past life who knows well and on this past tour you did a lot of climbing i mean i'm just saying uh, a lot of energy, lot of energy on that show for Brent, sure brent's drum uh riser had you all over it uh, yeah i saw many pictures where you were on top of that thing and then of course uh, in chicago you were able to do that not the same in indy because that place was so low ceilinged i do right, recall right. but uh Anyways, going back to Into Eternity, you guys released two albums together in your time with the band, uh, Scattering of Ashes in 2006 and The Incurable Tragedy in 2008. Now, in the yes. middle of that, in 2007, you got to tour with one of your, I do believe, favorite bands in Dream Theater, right? Yes. Yeah, we got to do that. That was great. Yeah, that was pretty spectacular freaking moment, man. Like, uh, we, were all, we were all super stoked on that one for sure. It has to be an unreal experience for you. Oh, it, it, it absolutely was. Absolutely was. Yeah, it was. It was. Um, you know, I, I love James Lavrie. He gets he gets a lot of hate, but uh, so do I. You know, and whatever. Like, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of of him, and uh, and I'm a big fan of Mike Portnoy. And we made we made friends. You know, and it was really cool. Uh, they were all very down to earth, and uh, we had a great time on that tour. Man, all we got was like I think we were playing. 20 to 25 minutes a night or whatever. I think we got a 30 minutes one night, but we were giving it our all. We were just happy to be there, man. We were, we were simply just happy to be there and playing with some of our idols. So uh, definite. Um, and that was our first arena tour, I believe, or like big theater kind of tour. Hell yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was really cool. And then we, and then, yeah, it was, did some really cool stuff with Into Eternity, man. Like <clears throat> paved the way for my career now and, um, you know, uh, taught me a lot, you know, did my first music videos with them. And so it was a freaking and made some of my best friends still till, till to this day are, you know, uh, Tim Roth and Troy and Justin and, you know, so it's, it's, it's great. You make long time life mates through music. And, and that's, I think ultimately, regardless of what your musical career does as any person in music, if you can create a genuine bond with people when you're making music, man, there's nothing greater. That's like genuinely my belief. No, that's that's going to last a lifetime. And so will the music that you created together because those albums will always be around. I still get, I'm, I, when I'm doing VIP meet and greets and stuff like that, I still get people coming up with that within to eternity albums, you know, getting me wanting me to sign them and going, I just got into to this, I've just bought all the albums. There's still kids buying them. You know what I mean? It's really cool. So that music will last forever. And so will the friendships um, that we, well, until we're dead, but you know, the, but uh, you know, basically those friendships serve valuable, you know, life, lifelong um, uh, treasures for sure. Hell yeah. So Incurable Tragedy comes out in 2008. Shortly thereafter, you guys find yourself yet again on the road playing with one of your favorite bands, Symphony X. Yes. Uh, yeah. And then again, yeah. Michael Romeo um, and then uh, Russell Allen, who, uh, 
he's a, he's a he's a good buddy, and so yeah, that was that was killer, man. Of course, Love your, it. your history yeah. with Russell Allen comes full circle later in uh, in uh, Plagues of Babylon, and we'll get into that here in a short minute. But touring with Symphony X is f- I, I want to just really quickly bring bring this up to you because your time touring with Into Eternity and you guys doing the show with Symphony X is the first time I ever hear the name Stu Block in my life. Okay. And Brando comes up to me and he sees you guys open for Symphony X in Chicago. I think it was the Pearl Room in Mokina, but don't quote me on that. And he goes, man, we were at the show and I went to see Symphony X and I'm stoked to see Symphony X, right? And I was like, yeah, man, I like Symphony X quite a bit. I think this was like right after Paradise Lost had just come out. And he goes, dude, the opening act blew me away. And I was like, okay. And he's like, you don't get it. And he played a couple tracks from from one of the two albums that you had done with Into Eternity, and it blew my mind because your range is insane. So I'm just I'm very curious. Where do you build your ability to build that range vocally? Well, uh, it's always kind of been there. Um, I don't know. I've had a natural ability to do those kinds of things, but because I started out. In Omega Chrome, I was doing like the sort of like the I started building it back then in, in like 1998, and uh, and I, I just kind of knew that I could hit the high stuff, and I love doing the death vocals. Trust me, I went through a lot of vocal heartache uh, figuring out how to do it, taking it on the road, learning how to transition everything. It was a lot of work, man. It was a lot of work, and uh, but once I learned and unlocked how it felt and how to do it so it didn't hurt my voice. I opened up a lot of doors for me, and opening up my diaphragm um, meant it was a big deal as well. So there was a lot of things that I learned about my voice by doing those types of things that unlocked a lot of uh, things later on for me. And even when I joined, and I hate to skip ahead, but even when I joined Iced Earth, I learned um, that I was learning stuff with my voice that I didn't even know I could do it. And so I'm learning all the time, and every tour... I learn stuff, and uh, um, and I think that's the important thing. If I stop learning and I stop challenging myself, then it's over, right? Like, I'm never going to progress as a vocalist. Dead in the water, man. Uh, Yeah, totally. And I think Um, that it takes a very um, forward-thinking musician to be aware of themselves enough to go, like, look at what I've done so far in my musical journey and look what I can still do. Look what I need to learn. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and um, I've met a lot of musicians that I think come out, come across as like, oh, I, I know it all. And, and hey, maybe they do. Maybe they do, you know, and, and all the power to them. But I'm, I don't think that there's a human that exists in any subject matter that knows everything about that subject. You know what I mean? It's just there's not all, possible. It's, it's impossible. Absolutely. Empirically impossible. I can even tell you that so for sure. On the other side of Into Eternity, uh, the tide shifts and while you're doing a tour with symphony X on right after incurable tragedy comes out, iced earth is reuniting with Barlow. Right. And they are gearing up to release the closing part of the chapter of the set abominate story, which was the crucible of man. Right. So I actually was there for Barlow's first show back and it was actually incredible. First time I saw iced earth, different feeling of music, man, honestly, like, genuinely mean that totally i mean i love barlow man you everyone knows that so absolutely so um and we're going to get into some stuff later but 
I want to know, just like out of the gate, 2011 comes around. We're fast-forwarding a little bit here. And you get this phone call from Century Media, I'm guessing, or John. I'm not sure if he had somebody get in touch with you or he personally reached out. I'm not sure how that works. Um, and said, hey, we want you to try out for Ice Earth. What was the first thought in your head? Like, did you think it was a joke? Was this like, no, come on, this isn't really happening? Well, to answer to answer your first question, yeah, they had someone reach out to me. Um, they had a, a, a actually, it was cool how they did it because because I was in Into Eternity, I was on Century Media before, and I knew a lot of the label reps, and I knew a lot of the PR guys and the A and R guys and all that kind of stuff. And so they got a guy that knew me. Um, his name was uh, Steve Joe, and uh, he phoned me one day, and yeah, he reached out and uh, <clears throat> basically. Uh, <clears throat> didn't tell me right away what the band was, in fact, uh, because he knew that I uh, Into Eternity at that point was sort of stagnant. We weren't really doing much. Um, I was working a day job, um, you know, just thinking about life and thinking about where I want to go forward with music or, you know, thinking about what to do. And I got this call. And um, so he, he, like I said, at first he didn't say who it was. He goes, well, what are you doing? And he started fishing, you know, and well, he said, he said, well, there's a, there's a fairly decent sized band that's looking for a vocalist and then of course I really started getting intrigued and I said listen just tell me who it is and he told me it was Iced Earth and I was blown away I was just like wow wow and so basically long story short he got me in contact with John John and I talked uh for quite a while <clears throat> on the phone got a feel for each other and then he said well there's a there's a you know if you want to take it out here to come and try out uh, it's all yours and I I I I think I said Yes, but I got to talk to my wife, talk to my, you know, my, my lady. And, uh, and then, but my lady is so cool. She was like, why do you even talking to me about this? You should have just done it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Why so, aren't you I, already on the plane? Already on the plane, you know? Uh, but anyway, so, uh, long story short, uh, again, I, I, I'm on that plane and I get there. We hit it off immensely, um, in his studio and, uh, we wrote a, a song together. Um, I sang a few older songs, um, and the next day I woke up and we were, we were, we went downstairs and he said, if you want the gig, you got the gig. I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I did. I was sleeping upstairs and I could overhear his conversation with his manager going, I think we found our guy. I was really, really excited. <laughs> was there any but, part of you like going, I hope they weren't talking about someone else. Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> you know, I think I remember going, I, I think, I hope they're talking about me. But then I went downstairs for eight bacon and eggs and, uh, sure enough, I, I, I was who they were talking about. So I was very proud and, uh, phoned, phoned my lady and said, well, this is what's happening. And I said, I'm going to take it and we're going to, we're going to do this. And here I am. So, um, but yeah, it was amazing. It was a really cool experience and, uh, the electricity, um, and, and John and I, again, we'll probably will touch on this later, but, um, the cool thing about this whole thing is that I made one of the one of my very best friends ever, and John and I have connected so so closely um, uh, through the creating music together, through touring together, through being the up, doing the ups and the downs. We've experienced death together. Um, there's we've been through a lot together in, a, and we even went through it in in a very short period of time. Those first three years, there was a lot that happened, um, and uh, we're now embarking on um, me being in the band. Shit, it's been uh, seven seven plus years now, so seven seven and some change, right? So uh, almost eight, I think. Yeah. So um, really, really 
goes by quick, man. It goes by quick, but I made I made some very good friends and I've and um it's been an amazing experience so far, for sure. Just to briefly touch on your seven, almost eight years with Iced Earth, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but you were officially the second longest tenured singer of the band, now yes. only trailing Barlow, who had nine years with Iced Earth. Yes, and and I'm I'm hoping to exceed that. I that, really am. I'm. I feel like that. Let me say this, and maybe this is a little too personal of a story to share. This is just something that happened on stage in Chicago that really affected me. I was there with my brother, Brandon, like we've, we've again, kind of like you and John had a lot of up and downs together, experienced a lot together, lived and learned and grew up together. And you introduced, before you introduced brothers, you kind of shouted out John and just how grateful you were for him giving you the opportunity and how it affected your life. And Mm -hmm. it showed me that even in a position where you are now, where you have been kind of, through the work and determination you put in, been awarded this opportunity that even seven years later, you're you're still as humble as the first day you joined this band, I feel. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think um, staying humble is the key to success. I really honestly believe that. Um, There's a lot of very arrogant, successful people out there, but they, they, I guess, um, I don't know. Again, we talk about success is relative, right? But um, I'm I'm not out there to. I made a long. I made a I made a promise to myself a long time ago, because um, I met some. Ro- I've met rock stars. I've met people that coming up, even in Into Eternity, Omega Crumb. I've met people that I looked up to that I was like, oh my god, you're horrible, you know. And I really love your music, and it, but it ruins it for me. So I made a promise to myself that if I'm ever at that level and I'm interacting with fans. I need to take the time out to talk to them. I need to make sure that they understand that I care about them because without them, we're nothing. And um, we're all humans. We all have feelings and we're all going through shit. And I think what my job is because and, and the other responsibility that I've chosen doing what I do is the fact that I'm an entertainer. At the end of the day, I am an entertainer, and I'm very blessed to be able to entertain by writing, helping write music that helps me thera- therapeutically as well by getting a message out there that I want to get off my chest or uh, talk about something, and people can connect to it. But I also have a responsibility to know that uh, there that our fans, if without them, we'd be nothing, and and uh, it's it's I have to be humble for them as well because if it, it's not going to help me or it's not going to help them in any way by spreading any negativity or trying to be someone I'm not um, because people eventually they do see through that and, and the fans are smarter than that. But uh, and if then a lot of these people and I've found a lot of people that connect to our music, there's a lot of people that have depressing issues and there's a lot of people going through stuff. So it is my responsibility to make sure that I'm cautious as to how I interact with them because I don't want to hurt them in any way either. Right now, if you're an asshole to me, then of course you're going to get the respect is earned, not given of course. And that's a big thing to me, but most people are very respectful and um, all they want to do is get an autograph. But if it's 25 people in a row and I've got to go through all 25 then I've got to do it. Um, I try to do special things for certain fans because, you know, maybe they can't come out or, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it's, it's my, I've, I've chosen, I've chosen to be an entertainer. So it's my responsibility to be, to be the person that I, the, the best person I can be that people can connect to because they're already connecting to the music. Why ruin that by being a dick? <laughs> you know, like it's not, it's not, it's not really, 
not really a good thing. And I and I've experienced that. So I just made a promise to myself a long time ago to stay to stay humble and to uh, to because this can is all going to end. It's all going to end. You know, everything um, ends, gonna, bro. It's all going to end. So um, and one day I'm going to look back and all I'm going to have is pictures and all I'm going to have is the friends and the people that and the relationships that I made along the way. And I think those are going to be the most valuable things. So um, uh, I don't want at the end of the day looking at it going, no one wanted to hang out at, at, because I'm not doing this anymore. No one wants to be hang out with me or even talk to me because I was a dick to them. And, and that's what, where did that get me? It gets you nowhere. Right. And so, so anyway, that's all I got to say about that. But basically, yeah, just stay humble and because um, talent, talent is definitely is is like a, it's it comes from a natural place. It's not. I'm not going to say it's God given because I'm not a you know I'm not a religious person. But um, it's definitely naturally ingrained in a person, and uh, and we're given that opportunity by humans to be able to live our dreams in this sort of illusionary manner, uh, which is an illusion. I sell an illusion every day. If that's really what it is, you know, um, TV, movies, music. and But if we're going to be part of an illusion, at least within that illusion, I can be selling something real or be telling a real story. You know, if, if they want me to be this person that I'm not, um, I'll never be that. You know what I mean? But at least I'm going to show the truth of 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 what I'm doing and not be contrived about it, you know, well said, people, man. people see through that. People Ab- will totally see through that. Absolutely. So slamming into this, you get offered the gig and then it's pretty much, let's get into writing a new album immediately. Um, how was dystopia for you getting your bearings right out of the gate with this new band and experiencing John as a co-songwriter who has his hands in a lot of the elements of iced earth some would say almost every element of that band. Yeah. Um, how was that experience for you just watching him almost the master at work while you're still getting your bearings, as it were? Oh, it was, it was very inspiring. I mean, it's it's uh, to see him, the work ethic that he has is is, uh, is a very, very high level of, of work ethic. He's a very, especially in the writing process and in the recording process, it's, it's 14 to 18 hour days, literally every day for him that's he doesn't sleep much <clears throat> he's always doing something so um he uh he'll he'll get burnt out a little bit and, you know maybe have to sleep in till 8 a.m <laughs> <laughs> uh but uh he's uh he's a well-driven machine and it's really interesting watching it all happen because um without without that um i really without that kind of leadership or that kind of imagination and that kind of drive. I just don't think that they'd be where they are. Um, I don't think that he would be where he is and created the brand that he's created because he's, it's really a brand that he's created. Iced earth is a brand and, um, from every aspect to, but he's built such a high quality brand that nothing that he really, he doesn't put out anything that isn't to either his standards or that he, you know, or a higher quality. You know what I mean? It's always has to be quality first for him. So that's uh, very inspiring. And and if it takes time for him to create that quality, that's fine. Um, if he's given a time constraint, he will create the highest quality product he can within the time that he's time and money that he's given. He's not going to cut corners, but he he will take it to the he, he's he's a take it to the maximum kind of guy. Like he 
always make sure he maximizes what he's been given. And, um, and I think it drives true with his personal life and it drives true again with, um, uh, the way the way he carries himself and and uh, it's it's a very cool thing. It's a very cool thing. So um, he's definitely a, a leader at heart, and he's he loves the band. He loves and and like I said, he loves the band, and he loves and I'm sure he loves how much work he's put in. I'm sure he even he looks back and he goes, "Holy shit, I've done a lot of work." You know, that's a lot of albums and that's a lot of hours. That's a lot of work. So, um, I mean, it's something to look back and be proud of, and <clears throat> I think it's really cool. I'm going to throw another stat at you amidst our conversation here because you're talking about work ethic, and I feel like whether you're aware of this or not, your work ethic is also just unsurmountable to anybody else because you have the most shows within Iced Earth as a lead singer more than all the other singers combined. Yeah, I've done – I. I yeah, we were looking at it, and I've done more tour, more touring than than every singer. I mean, yeah. that's got to just take a tax and a toll on your body and on your throat, and on a little bit has to be on your mental too. So, I, I mean, um, kudos yeah, to you. Toll on everything, man. It's uh, but we're warriors. This is what we were meant to do, and uh, I think uh, I knew what I was getting into. When I joined the band, um, when we when when John and I first talked, he said I. You know, I want to be out there more. I want to be touring more because that's where we got to be. And um, we sure did. <laughs> Absolutely. You guys embarked on a crazy tour that um, went like three years almost or two years, three years. Yeah, almost three years. Yeah. So and then and, and then a little tiny break and then plagues, which we didn't do tons of touring on. Um, and then we had to take a, a brief little break. And then now we're back at it again. Um, but we've done even even with the small breaks that we did take. um I think there's still a shit ton of shows, man. Yeah, I've done a lot. I've done more than than a lot of the. Yeah, I've done. A, I think the most than any singer in Iced Earth for sure. And I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. And of course, it does. Like you're saying, it does it take a toll? Of course, it takes a toll. I've I've never really experienced major vocal problems where to the point where I could not sing. It only happened to me actually once in all my years of of being in of actually singing since Omega Crom and stuff and it actually happened in iced earth and it happened in freaking Scotland or something like that. I woke up and I couldn't hit a, a, it was air coming through. I couldn't do anything and it was the freakiest thing. And then the next day it came back and I've never experienced the problem again. So something happened there. I'm not too sure what it was the perfect storm. And, uh, but the fans were great about it. You know what I mean? I, we basically told them what was going on and they were still absolutely killer because if there's one thing about Iced Earth fans is that they are the most lo- some of the most loyal um, heavy metal fans out there. And, and they, they, they see past all the bullshit. They see, see past, a lo- past a lot of the bullshit, so, which is really cool. So they were there for us. And, uh, but, yeah, it does take a toll on uh, relationships too. I mean, not, not that it's ever really taken a toll on my wife and I's relationship, but to the point where, yes, we do miss each other. And, yes, we want to be home more with each other. But this is what I do for a living. And, and it, uh, but she's very understanding and she's – comes from she's a musician as well so she came from she knew touring and stuff like that so she's uh she's very well aware and we have such a great relationship that it really never hurt anything but 
missing your family. Of course, it's a big thing. You, you want to be home. You know, you miss birthdays. You you miss uh, anniversaries. You miss um, all these important things. And um, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, I chose to be an entertainer, and I chose to make sure that people that did have a bad day at work or a bad week or something like that had something to look forward to by coming to one of our shows and watching us have a great time and then they can forget about their problems right so then that's kind of what i signed up for i think that to go back to the thing that happened to you in scotland one thing that is also to be said about iced earth fans while loyalty is a huge thing they all really love to sing as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's all right, you know. So I'm so. sure you were probably just like, well, I guess you guys are going to have to help me tonight, that's you know. Like, that's what we did. You know, I said that's probably something exactly that I said. I said, you know what, you guys are just going to have to help me tonight. and Let's have a great time. Let's party. So you know? getting back to Dystopia real quick before we're going to move into Plagues and then into the rest of this here. So when Dystopia comes out, you're now not a fan of – well, I mean you're still a fan of Iced Earth, but now you're a member of Iced Earth. What is the re- how do you take the reception from the fans of Dystopia and the what I thought was a lot of positive reviews on that first album for you in this band? Yes, and I agree. I would I would agree with you. Um, I was really happy about that. We did uh, <clears throat> we first released the re-recording of Dante's Inferno um, before the album, so that was we wanted to just get a fit you know gauge the waters. And there's always going to be haters out there. There's always going to be people that that don't like it. But there was a very large amount of people that really liked it. So we were very, very happy about that. Um, And uh, so uh, when the album released, people took it in. And I think it was a really good high percentage of positive people. And so, of course, it's a sigh of relief. It's, you know, okay, we don't have to deal with that, you know. Um, Now we just got to make sure that we're out there giving it our all each night and and putting on the best show possible. And I was still learning how to interact with the Iced Earth fans because I came from a different school, more death metal kind of stuff. And, uh, um, you know, and but but there was the power metal in there. But, uh, you know, so I was still learning how to refront again. I think I was a re there was a learning process for me again. And John and I would work every, every night we'd be working, he'd be working on me after the show. He'd be like, okay, you got to do this. You can't do this, blah, 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 blah. This is what they like. This is, you know, listen to live in Athens, look at what the fans are doing. Cause that's basically what the whole fans are, are basically copying They're they're Cause alive in Athens was the first kind of template for where to chant and all that kind of stuff. Cause the Greek people kind of set that template, you know? Um, so it was, and then, um, so it was really, a learning curve for me and so it was cool but once once i got into my groove i think i i think i found it for sure hell yeah and like i was saying you guys go on this long long journey of touring for almost three years or just around three years right before plagues of babylon gets recorded within that time you guys do the show in ancient corion which is essentially the modern era alive in athens show man Yes, sir. Yeah, um, <clears throat> something would, yeah, they'd never done before. That experience, again, I feel like just overwhelming for you. I know, obviously, a lot of that's retold on the making of Ancient Curion, but overall for you, standing on that stage, looking out into that sea of people, was there any moment that was almost too too much for you? Because, I mean, as a musician, I've also experienced that like overwhelmingness of like, wow, there, this is, I was not expecting this. Holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, man, of course. Like, you know, I'm not saying like I was like, whoa, like I lost complete control because of I was overwhelmed or anything like that. But yes, it was definitely like very cool to watch all those the the people so into it. And and it was hot. 
So yeah, that was a little overwhelming too, because it was hot, hot, hot up up there. So we were all sweating our asses off um, on no sleep, um, and uh, we were rocking out for these guys, and it was it was actually really, really killer. It was fun. The energy is definitely visible when you watch Huge Ancient Corian. Huge energy, absolutely. Yep. Uh, so moving into 2014, you guys start to embark on writing and recording Plagues of Babylon. Interesting to note, within Plagues of Babylon, you get the opportunity to work with three different people that are noted as some of your influences on yeah. this album. So uh, Dystopia is the first time you're the lead singer of Iced Earth. Now this is the sophomore album, and you have an opportunity to work with some of these people that are essentially heroes to you yeah what is that experience like when you know john's like hey man i have this crazy idea and i think that we're gonna bring hansi in for a song yeah i I was blown away right and and hansi's always been very awesome to me when even the first time i met him um he's just a really humble again another humble down-to-earth awesome guy um again the guy that that every front man should should He's like the Freddie Mercury of of metal, man, but just not gay. You know what I mean? Like I want, I want that, that to be on a t-shirt. Right, but he's just so like emotional and so talented and and uh he's uh, a really humble guy, very nice. He's always been super nice to me. Um and uh, so yeah, it was obviously a freaking treat to to be able to be on the same uh, I actually got to we got to sing together on stage. Um which was great. And then, uh, we, yeah, we did the song together, which was great. And then of course you guys also, uh, Hansi appearing on among the living dead, but you guys also did a cut of highwaymen. Russell mm-hmm. Allen appears on that as well as Michael Polson from Volbeat. Again, yep. it's just an amazing experience. Did you have, were you all together when that was happening or did they send their tracks in? How does that work? They sent their tracks in. Yeah. Russell and, uh, Mike sent their tracks in and John and I cut our tracks, uh, in the studio there. Were you just grinning like children, like, oh, this is going to be so great. I can't wait for everyone oh, to hear yeah, this. No, we were really excited to see how it was going to turn out and stuff. And when we get, when we got Mike's tracks and uh, Russell's tracks, we were, you know, we, we totally got, yeah, we were like little kids. We were like, yeah, this is great. This is awesome. So, yeah, it was good. So I'm going to jump, before we get into Incorruptible, which is the most recent thing you've got going on, I want to ask you a out-of-order question within the history of Iced Earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Iced Earth has done several, you know, themed or concept albums. Uh, one of which was Horror Show, obviously critically acclaimed album that paid tribute to horror stories and icons like Dracula, Frankenstein, Imhotep, Damien, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also your first album, I believe, that you got from Iced Earth. Me? Yes. Um, or was it? Yeah, yeah. Horror Show was my yeah Horror Show was my first album. Tribute to the Gods was my second, and then Burnt Offerings was my third, and then I I forget. Oh yeah, uh, Glorious Burden was my fourth. Oh, <laughs> awesome! I uh, was all over the place, man. But I, there was so much to pick from when I when I got into them. I feel so, like you must have got into that band. Like I feel like you got into Ice Earth literally right around the time I did because my first two albums, Horror Story, Tribute to the Gods. Then I got yeah. the Blessed and the Damned, and then got Glorious Burden in that order. Yeah. Um, so curious from that question that I just asked about horror show, if you had the chance, now that you're a member of this band and an integral part, to go back in time, and they're going to bring horror show back to the front, and you get to take an icon or a horror story that Iced Earth has never touched and do a song about it, what would you do? That Iced Earth has never done? Correct. Because I know... Um, 
Purgatory, there was some Jason stuff and Freddy stuff, so I wouldn't want to totally go cliche on it. Um, but I would, uh, I would probably do, I would probably, Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, and I, an iconic one, right? So I would probably, anyone, man, what's, what's something that you know you I'd could go, write from I'd the heart go, about? I'd go with pin, I'd go with pinhead. Hell yeah. Pinhead. Hellraiser. About pinhead. I mean, I love, I got, I got Freddie on the back of my leg. I got Jason on my knee. You know I mean? I love Freddie and Jason, but I think that those might, you know, those would be more typical. I think pinhead would be like a little less atypical. Um, and then Candyman would be a cool one. Oh, that's awesome. Um, Candyman would be a really cool one. Uh, I think doing a, I think doing a, having a sort of more playful but dark, Chucky one would be kind of cool. Oh, that would that actually is a great idea. Yeah, but playful but yet fucking twisted and dark. You know what I mean? Like I don't know. So yeah, just some ideas there. You I, never know. I you never know what we do in the future. Absolutely, man. And the, and the future definitely looks bright for what you guys have going on. Um, throwing out a random question here: What was it like doing the Baltimore show and then at the end of the show watching over me Matt joined you on stage Matt Barlow original one of the original singers for Iced Earth sorry going back to horror show also uh, Swamp Thing oh yes also Swamp Thing I love that anyway sorry uh, what was it like uh, with Matt oh my god that was freaking amazing Um, I I was literally like I had I was yeah man like I don't want to sound like a you know, but I, I was almost in tears, man, because it was like a dream come true, man. And and I had him in my in-ear monitor. I told the monitor guy to crank, to put his vocal in my ears because I wanted to hear everything. And it was freaking amazing, man. It was, it was an honor and it was amazing. Um, and again, another humble, awesome dude. Um, again, all singers should should uh, take a template from Hanzi and him as well because uh, for being humble because they're just super humble down to earth guys and yeah but Matt's Matt's super great and uh, uh, I think he had a great time too I think he had a really fun time and I think it was really amazing to see uh, John and and him together and John was just so happy seeing him on stage with him and I think uh, um, it was all in all just a really 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 cool thing for everybody was I that know. the first time you had met Matt. Uh, no, I toured with Matt. I toured with Iced Earth in, in into eternity. Really, um, actually, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, so that, there's a tidbit for you. Uh, into eternity toured with Iced Earth in 2007, I believe. Don't quote me. Two seven, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand seven, maybe. Um, and uh, so. Um, Actually, I met him a couple times, but he was a very busy guy, and I didn't really talk to him too much. But he was, again, really cool when we talked to him. Um, and uh, John actually did hear me warming up backstage once, and he peeked his head, and he goes, man, you got some killer pipes, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, funny, little do you know, I'm going to be your singer. <laughs> that would be so weird. But, uh, yeah, so that was cool. That's definitely probably a little memory that you have that you'll never forget. Like, Oh my God, John Schaefer told me I had great pipes and now you tell him and he probably doesn't necessarily remember that moment, but it's like, wow, that's crazy. I we've talked about it before. I think he he did say he remembered. So that's that's great. Hell yeah. Uh, so 
we move into the future now, and it's coming up on 2016 early, leading into 2017. You guys start writing and working on Incorruptible, and now you're a well-oiled machine, man. And yeah. I feel like all the pieces are in place for you guys fully. Everything has worked itself out. You know, what is the experience yeah. like when you go in to do Incorruptible? Is it just like the easiest experience you guys have had so far? Were there secretly bumps along the road that we typically wouldn't hear about because, you know, a lot of people don't ask these kind of questions? Yeah, no, I understand. Uh, kind of rewinding a little bit. <clears throat> sure, please do. Talking about, talking about, if we're, okay, this, there's a lot of factors as to why everything was so relaxed on this one for sure. And of course, one of those factors is, yes, we've been together a long time. Yes, that's a big factor for sure. But studio is another factor. Um, timing, where we did things, all factors for sure. Like Plagues of Babylon was <clears throat> demoed in Uruguay. Um, things were a little chaotic at the time. Um, and then we had to record it in Germany. <clears throat> things changed uh, when we were told certain technical aspects of that studio that they had when we showed up, they didn't have them. So we had to deal with a lot of situations there. It was hot. Um, there was a lot of, a lot of things happening there. Dystopia was done in, <coughs> was demoed in John's studio in Indiana. It was very relaxed. Um, we were just getting, there was a, we were just getting to know each other and, um, there was a lot of the music was written, um, just needed to write lyrics and stuff like that. So <coughs> there was, um, a lot of stuff that was already done. So um, there's factors involved as to why things sound the way they are and all that kind of stuff. Um, now we have our own studio again. Um, we're in Indiana and uh, we've got the head headquarters and studio. It's um, Ice Earth HQ. It's uh, Independence Hall. And uh, so with this one, it was the perfect storm, I believe, because it was the fact that we'd been together for a long time. We'd already written two albums together. Um, <clears throat> we, um, you know, Luke is a, is a great bass player and Luke has a great attitude and he brought to the table some great ideas as well. Um, John had his own studio, uh, uh, in, in a place that he felt very relaxed. Um, when I came in to record my vocals, I had a lot more time to record my vocals and I was able to sleep a lot more. I wasn't uh, sleep deprived or anything like that, where in certain albums I was. Um, and you know, of course I'm more relaxed because I know, I know the music more and I'm, I'm really in tune with the style of vocal now and all that kind of stuff. So I think Mick, you know, um, having your own studio, being relaxed, coupled with doing it for, you know, having the experience of being with each other for a long time, it created the perfect storm. And then having that time off and having us, we did have a spiritual journey. All of us, we, we all really, really had some time to find ourselves and stuff like that. So we had a lot of fire. There was, we were fired up. We, we did a lot of touring, man. We were burnt out, you know, and, and we, between dystopia and plagues, it was, <clears throat> it was a lot. So, um, that time off really gave us that fire and, and we had more time to think about the music and all that kind of stuff. So there was a perfect storm. So, um, it was, and I just, I'm so proud of this album. I'm very, very proud of this album. I think it came out absolutely amazing and I'm proud of all the albums, but 
there's just something super, there's just something a little extra magical going on. 